Well, some of you know we've been in um, this Advent season now. This is week three. And uh, for this Advent season, we've been preaching a sermon series titled The Echoes of a Voice. Um, the, the, the knowledge there is, the, the gist there is that inside all of us, we have, because we are created in the image of God, we have these things that drive us internally. So two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about uh, a longing for justice and how each one of us know that there is a right and there is a wrong. Now, we might dif- differ in our, our understanding of what is right and what is wrong, but we do know that there is right and there is wrong. And so we would all long for things to be right, for things to be put right as we look at this broken world. And we saw that how has, how has Jesus come and he, he's done that, right? He is the hope that we have for justice. He is the hope that we have that, that things would be made right. And then last week we talked about this, this hunger that we have for relationship. All of us are beings that are created in the image of God, and, and God is a triune God, and so if we are made in that same image, then we also hunger for relationships. The first relationship that we hunger for is for God himself, and then he's created us together to be in relationship with each other. And so God, in the person of Jesus, has come, and he's restored right relationship to God, and he's made a way for us to have right relationship with each other. And so as we think about Advent, as we think about like what is Christmas time, Christmas time is when Jesus came and he was Emmanuel and God with us. He is incarnate. God himself came and took on flesh. And in that flesh, he walked perfect righteousness on our behalf to restore and fulfill all of these longings and desires that we have inside of us. The desires that he created us with because we're made in his image. Today we look at this, uh, the, the, the third point in our series. It's this quest for spirituality. Within each of us, we have a desire for something more than what we can see and feel. Something more than, than the material. Something more than the tangible. There's, there's a desire for purpose. There's a desire for reason. There's a desire for fulfillment that we can't get. And so we have this quest for spirituality. Now we go about it in a lot of different ways. Um, Some of us go about it in very spiritual ways. Some of us go about it in very controlling ways. And so uh, to open this morning, I just want to start. We're we're using N.T. Wright's, uh, he he wrote a book called Simply Christian. And in in the introduction, he's got four different chapters. And and so if you read the book, you'll see that we pull a lot of uh, the material for this Advent season from there. One of the things that he uses is he, in his, uh, his quest for spirituality, he uses an illustration about water. Imagine there's a country, and in that country there's a, there's a, a, a dictator. And that dictator rules and controls the country. And so he has all these systems and ways that he has uh, manufactured control over the people. But what they have is they have this, this problem. They have these, the water just springs up out of nowhere. Like water bubbles up, and for the most part, it's really, really good. It, it supplies life, it gives, uh, it, it gives them clean water to drink, but sometimes it gets polluted, and sometimes it actually be, can explode and, and cause geysers and cause destruction and flooding and damage. And so this dictator has decided that he's going to solve the problem, and the way that he's going to solve the problem is he's going to control the water, and so he 
puts concrete over the whole nation. And so that the water won't spring up anymore. But he does devise some plumbing and so some pipes and some ways that you can get just enough water in certain places and it's all very controlled. The problem is that after centuries of this, uh, this concrete being laid, finally the pressure of the water builds up so much that it begins to just break through the concrete. And now what would have been just a nice bubbling water is now this pressurized water and it's beginning to destroy Everything that this dictator has made and the the control that he's put over all of this water is now being blown up in his face. N.T. Wright would say that that is the Western culture. We have uh, put caps, put a concrete cap over spirituality. We have said, hey, you can have spirituality. You can have this quest for something more in your very controlled places, your very controlled churches. You're very controlled um, in your time and in your space at your home. But we're not just going to let this spiritual, this desire for more spring up and we're going to rationalize everything and we're going to have really creative uh, institutions and systems that would, that would mitigate this water doing whatever it wants. And so we would say, man, there's, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that even in even in the uh, Christian realm, we have said, hey, we're going we're gonna to compartmentalize this. We talk about it every, every week when we say, hey, we're gathered here on a Sunday, but this isn't all of it. But so much of cr- Christian culture in the Western world is, no, it's Sunday and maybe a Bible study or maybe it's a prayer meeting. But in, those are the places where spirituality is allowed to be. But when you begin to bring spirituality into your real life, when you begin to bring your trust and your faith into your relationships, we can't have that. That's not comfortable for anybody. And so today we're going to look and see, what, is, what does the Apostle Paul say to a people that are hungering for the spirituality? What is Paul going to say uh, to, to people who have all these idols and all these ways that they go about incorporating the spirituality into their life? Is he going to uh, begin to, to cap it, or does he point it to what's true? And I think that's what we need today. We need this, this indwelling hunger and quest that we have for spirituality to be met in the person and faith of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom today that we could be honest about, like, we have a desire for reason, for knowledge, but we also have a desire for satisfaction in our, in our being that we haven't been able to meet. But we trust that God is. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We trust you. Um, we trust that your word is welling up inside of us, that your spirit, God, as much as we would want to tell you how you should change us and how you should shape your world, Lord, we can't control you. We can't put you in a box or a time slot, Lord. And so we just pray that you would continue to show yourself faithful, that you would show us that you are God. Even last week as we looked at both the creator and the created, Lord, help us to know our place and that that place is a good place. That place is a place of rest and a place of action. God, we thank you that thousands of years ago, you came as a babe. 
fragile human. Lord, you were born with the purpose of going to the cross, with the purpose of uh, redeeming a people that do not deserve redemption, for restoring a people beyond their own ability to restore themselves. Lord, you came and you were born. And so, Lord, our hope has come. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to us. Lord, would you make that real in our hearts today? God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, even as Paul uh, very deftly preaches the gospel to a culture that doesn't want to believe it. Lord, I pray that we would believe it today and then that we would have that same desire to preach your word to a culture that doesn't want to hear it. We trust you for these things this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at this in three parts this morning. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul, and we're kind of jumping in. And this is always hard, right, when you jump into the middle of a story. The story of Acts is the building of the church. After, after Christ's ascension, which is in the beginning of Acts, we begin to see that God has appointed these apostles these disciples, to go and preach the gospel to the world. And so they're going, and and Paul is actually going on missions trips all around the known world at that time, throughout the Mediterranean. And one of the places that he goes is Athens. Now, uh, to kind of set where we're at, maybe you know Athens is in Greece. And before the Roman Empire, there was a Greek empire. There was a Greek uh, free city-states, right? And they were known for their culture, and they were... They were really, really, uh, they spent a lot of time thinking. And it's awesome. Some of the stuff that they came up with has, continues today to teach us and to form the way that we think about logical thought, about being able to um, figure out problems, about a, a lot of our philosophies come from the Greeks. Well, when the Roman Empire uh, took over the known world, they allowed Athens to continue to be a free city. That's how renowned the Athenian people were. They were known that, that, hey, these people are great thinkers. They're great artists. They're great. um, They they write beautiful things. We want to let them continue to do that. And so they allowed them to continue some of the practices that they had. And so Paul is now going to Athens. And he's going there. and, And what we find in verses 16 through 21 is that he's doing the same thing that he does everywhere. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 19, and they, brought, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. This is where Paul is going. 
Listen, you have a couple of things that Paul does. He goes to the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue, which is where the Jewish people would gather, wherever he went, and he would preach the good news that the hope that they had for one who would come, that the Christ that they longed for, that they would hope would bring the justice and, and bring the relationships and bring the spirituality and bring this kingdom that they longed for, he had come. And so Paul would go to the synagogues and tell the, the, faith, the people of faith there that their faith had been met in Jesus. Now some would believe and some would continue to say, no, that's, that's, that can't be him. That's not the way we pictured him coming, so it can't be him. And so, but some would believe. But Paul would also go, and he wouldn't just con- confine his preaching to those who had already professed faith in God, in Yahweh. He would go to the marketplace. And it says right here that, that he went, in verse 17, he went to the Jews and devout persons, and then he went in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. One of the things we can learn from Paul in this preaching, in this text, is wherever he went, he proclaimed the gospel. Like, that's how much of an effect it had on his life. He didn't compartmentalize it. He didn't create pipes that would give you just enough in the places where you wanted it. No, everywhere he went, he would preach the good news of Jesus Christ, and it would have effect. Sometimes the effect would be, who is this babbler? And sometimes the effect would be people who would then now lay down their lives and follow after this God who Paul was preaching. But everywhere he went, no matter whether it was the places where it was allowed to be preached or whether it was just the streets and the marketplace, he would go and he would proclaim that something had changed his life so drastically. We'll just let that sit for a little while because that's convicting. (laughs) When we think about that, we begin to realize, man, I don't even necessarily allow it to enter into the, the places where I'm comfortable the places where I feel safe, much less the places where I, I don't feel safe. I don't even speak that to my children sometimes, much less to my neighbor. And so I pray that God would do that in us. Listen, Paul had this amazing encounter with Christ that did this. He saw the person of Jesus on the road to Damascus and he knew that he had been an offender of that gospel. He had persecuted that gospel and so it was by grace that he had been saved. And so this morning, we're in that same category. It's by grace that we've been saved. It's by grace that we would know the gospel and so that should change the way that we live and the way that we speak and the conversations that we have, the way that we treat others as we talked about last week who are also image bearers of God. And so just, like, we're not even to the text yet. And already we're being challenged and we're being shaped and we're being formed by the way that Paul goes about his teaching. I want to explain a little bit of the Areopagus. Um, I did some, some research. All of this is brand new to me. So I'm just sharing with you what I'm learning. But that's what, we're, that's what our hope is, is that none of us would have all of the information. None of us would be experts, but together we would point each other to what we are learning and what is good news and what's truth. So this idea of the Areopagus was uh, in Athens. 
there was this hill known as uh, the Hill of Ares or the Hill of Mars. So Mars Hill is what it came to be known as. So that's a geographic place, but it's also a council. So this council of Areopagus were the ones who would uh, define what gods would be worshipped. And so they, they were the access point to getting your god uh, on the registry or your idol in the Parthenon or, or the Pantheon and, and worshipped And so often there would be a herald of this God who would come. And this herald would come and he would proclaim what his God had done. And then they would, as a council, decide whether that is sufficient for their God to have an idol that would be worshipped and and, uh, sacrificed to in their temple of idols. And so now these people that are part of the Areopagus hear it and they say, hey, this guy's talking about this Jesus Maybe he's a God that we should worship. And so that's the invitation that that Paul is getting, is to come and speak and be the herald of his God to this council that would then decide, hey, is this God worthy or not? And so that gives us this setting. Listen, these people were very religious. It says it in our text. It says in verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Listen, we all have faith and religion of some sort. We all have things that we believe. And Paul looks at these Athenian people and he says, Listen, you have all of these idols. All of these things that you're hoping for, that you're putting your faith in. And I'm telling you that there's, there's empty, but I have one who has come and his faith in him is not empty. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on the New Testament says this about uh, the council of Areopagus. He says, but there was in Athens a venerable institution, the court of Areopagus, which exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and morals. This Aristotle, aristocratic body of venerable antiquity received its name from the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the Greek god of war, southwest of the Acropolis on which it traditionally met. Its traditional power was curtailed with the growth of Athenian democracy in the 5th century BC, but in Roman times, which is where we're at, its authority was enhanced and and it commanded great respect. Before this body then, Paul was brought not to stand trial in a forensic sense nor yet to be examined with a view of being licensed as a public lecturer, but simply to have an opportunity of expounding his teaching before experts. So that's where we're at. Paul comes into this council. Now, this council is made up of two main groups of people. Now, there are other people groups that are represented, but two main groups of people. And we have it listed for us in verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers... Epicureans and Stoics. Maybe you know it, but I didn't. So again, I had to go and look it up. But the Epicureans believed um, that there was a that nothing happens outside of chance. So everything happens by chance, and then you die. So it's this this life of hey, we need to. So what do we do about that? Kent Hughes, in his preaching the word, he, he defines it this way. Paul began dialoguing with anyone who would talk, and he found three groups of hearers. Those who were religious, right? The Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that he talked to in the beginning in the synagogue. The street variety pagans. 
and the intellectual philosopher types called Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The latter two groups represented the competing philosophies of the day. The Epicureans believed that everything happens by chance and death is the end, extinction with no afterlife. They believed there are gods, but those gods have nothing to do with the world. They were practical agnostics who believed pleasure is the chief end of man and that a simple lifestyle is the most pleasurable. The Stoics were pantheists, believing that everything in God, everything is God, and that whatever happened to them was their destiny. Consequently, they sought to live with apathy and detachment, fatalistic resignation. Together, these two philosophies represented the popular pagan alternatives for dealing with the plight of humanity apart from Christ. Epicureanism, simple lifestyle. Stoicism, apathy. Whatever happens, no big deal. Both were highly intellectual and both lacked divine validation. How would they respond to the gospel that Paul preached? Listen, before we move on, I I just want us to look at this idea you see, what competing philosophers and worldviews dominate our current moment? That's a question. What are the things that are telling us, hey, this is what we should do about the problem that we have? If we all have a sense of justice, and yet we know that things are, are not right, how do we go about fixing that? You see, the Epicureans, they had this idea that they should fix their own problem. But the Stoics concluded that they didn't have any... Uh, ability to fix it. Everything was outside of their control, so they should just go with it. We see this in so many of our ways of approaching the world today. Either we think that we can fix it, or it's outside of our ability to fix, and so that we just let the problem be. It is what it is. Both those are, are going to get us nowhere. Either us working really hard to fix our own issues, or us just coming to the point where that, that issue can't be fixed, so I'm just going to let it be, neither one of those are going to get the result that we're hoping for. And yet these well-known philosophers had those two beliefs. The Epicureans were trying to fix this thing, and the Stoics were saying, well, we can't fix it, so we'll just enjoy it. And so Paul comes in, and in verse 23 begins to... Uh, preach the gospel. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar to this, with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
It's a long passage. And yet in that passage, Paul very succinctly steps through the whole story of God. He begins with God as creator. He, he walks us through this idea and, and the whole impetus of what he's saying. He's saying, you, you've tried to cover all your bases. You've even made a, 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 a statue, an idol, and you've made an inscription to the unknown God. Just in case there is one that we haven't found yet. We, we're good with that one too. So make sure, make sure you give your sacrifices and you worship that one. Just aside that we do that. We try to cover our bases with God sometimes. We say, I'll give you just, just something, a little bit. And yet God's calling, because of what Jesus has done, he's calling for all of our life. And so, let's press in. Let's see what this means. So what he's doing now is he's, he's saying, listen, I'm not introducing you to a new God. I'm not here as a herald trying to, trying to sell you this other God. No, there's a God who has been always, who, who was, who is, and who always will be. And that's the God I want to introduce you to today. This God that you worship is unknown. I want to make him known to you. Listen, inside of each of us, there's this longing for something greater for a satisfaction that we can't find. Inside of my neighbors, there's a satisfaction that they're looking for that I know is found in Jesus, and yet I often will not take that and speak it to them. I won't hold it out as this good thing that they need. That's sin. Like, like that is, that's not loving my brother and sister. Because if I truly love them, if I truly saw them as God's created being, then I would go to them with this good news that I have. Hey, your satisfaction can be met in a Jesus that I know and, and is meeting my satisfactions. Now, don't get me wrong. I still run. I chase after other things. And yet I've experienced the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. And that experience satisfies more than anything else. More than anywhere else I've searched and anywhere else you're searching. Paul's coming to them and he's telling the Athenian people the same thing. The satisfaction that you're looking for, the spirituality that you're looking for, that you're trying to cover all your bases. I'm telling you, there is a God and this is him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Listen, it starts with creation. If we do not begin there, if we haven't laid that foundation... In the way that we talk to people, it's something that, that we can all see. All of us can see creation and be blown away by its majesty and its beauty. And then when we point to the God who has made it, it gives reason for all of it. Paul begins there. Listen, he hasn't quoted any scripture yet. He's pointing to things that, that these philosophers and these, these skeptics can see and believe. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, God creator. Now he's talking about God, sovereign Lord, the one who sustains all things, the one who is king over all things, the Lord over mankind. He doesn't live in temples made by man. Listen, he's standing amongst temples made by man. And he's decrying to these people that you have built these things that will not satisfy. 
There is no God that lives here in a temple made by man. Not this God. Not the God who can meet you in this place. Does not live in temples made by man. 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This idea that that God would somehow need us. No, if God is the center of the story, and we talk about this a lot, because we're quick to impose us into the center of the story and make God something about us. No, if God is the center of the story, now our lives revolve around Him. Our lives are now laid at His feet and say, Lord, what would you have me do today? Where would you have me go today? How would you want to use my life for your glory? Not served by human hands, as though he needed anything from us, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Listen, these first couple things challenge us. And then this gracious giver meets us in our place of need. If we could see God as a gracious giver who has given us everything that we need for life and breath and everything, man, that would change the way that we live. If that's what I wake up with in the morning, it changes how I organize and schedule my day. Because now I want to give gratitude for the grace that I've received. I want my life to be a picture of that. Rather than a self-centered, always trying to step up to the next rung, making comfort my supreme. That's what I do. That's what we do. And yet if we, were organ- if we were centered around the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace that we found in the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done for us, then it changes the way that we live our lives. It allows us to love one another and love God. And he goes on. This gracious giver, what else has he done? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Listen to the Athenian people who are living. Yeah, they're, they're a free city, but they're still surrounded by the Roman Empire. They're still governed by the Roman Empire. Any freedom that they have is allowed by this Roman Empire. But Paul's talking about a God who is... Who, who's sovereign over that empire, who's sovereign over the, the Greek empire, who's sovereign over um, all of the, the, the Egyptians and the people that have come before, the Babylonians, the Persians. He's talking about a God who, who has allowed the, the empire to proceed to this point and then it's done. Like, that's crazy. Because... Man becomes very small in that picture. Even the greatest men, even the the greatest conquerors, even the greatest militaries become very small when compared to God. God is this sustainer and provider of all. He's sovereign God over all time and nations. And then at the very end it says that, why is he doing this? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Finally, this God is, he's a knowing and a knowable God. Like this God who's huge can also be known. He knows you. He created you. So he knows the way that you're wired, the way that you think, and it's very individual, and yet he knows it perfectly. And he calls you to feel your way towards him so that you may know him. How has he done that? 
How has he become knowable? Before we get to that, Paul incorporates the culture. Like there's some good things in the culture that 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 are that Paul uses. In him we live and move and have our being. Now in your Bible that might be a quote, but it's not a quote from Old Testament scripture, which is what most of your quotes are. It's a quote from a, a current philosopher in Athens who's who has this thought process. And Paul is using that language to define truth. He's saying, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Listen, he's taking the culture, the truth, the the, the bits of truth, and he's saying, listen, this is some of the things that you believe, but it's misplaced, and let me place it where it needs to be. Let me place it in a true satisfaction and faith in Christ. We have this God who we are his offspring. Now listen, he could have gone back and he said, listen, you you were created, Adam was created, and then gone through a genealogy, right, to finally get to to those people. But instead, he, he met them in their longing, in their quest for spirituality. He said, listen, you have this desire in you. It's written in some of your poetry. And I'm telling you that it's fulfilled in God. And here's the... Here's the real kicker. It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus. 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, tying role of creator and created, putting us in our place. So the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. We talked about this two weeks ago when we were talking about this longing for justice that we have. God had promised that one would come who would execute perfect justice. Who would walk in righteousness. Who who would pour out mercy on a people that do not deserve mercy. Jesus has come and done that. And so we have this knowable God in the person of Jesus. Listen, as we think about Advent, we're, we're longing, we're, we have a hope that will be satisfied not with presents and gifts and food and family. We have a hope that is only satisfied in Jesus. And we look everywhere else for satisfaction. We look everywhere else for that to meet this inner quest that we have. And yet Paul points us to Jesus. And that we are God's children, that we should worship him. And then he points to the resurrected Jesus in verse 31. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died. Literally died. He was He was buried. And not like he could hold his breath for a long time, several days, and then all of a sudden this happened. No, he died, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. And as he says these words, everybody's tracking with him, right up until he gets to the person of Jesus. At the person of Jesus, when we begin to talk about a resurrection and something fanciful, something that's outrageous to our minds... We balk at it. 
And yet, what we're talking about, this quest for spirituality, is not a mind thing. It's not a logic thing. We have something inside of us that, that is longing for it. Not longing for it to make perfect sense, but we want it. And then he said, Paul is saying, listen, Jesus has come. And it's crazy. But the proof that he is the one who will judge is found that he resurrected. That he was raised from the dead. He is the God-man. He is the one that we need, the one that could atone for our sin. The one who, by his death on the cross, took the punishment that we deserved. We don't even think we deserve punishment, much less that somebody else could take it for us. But the truth of Scripture says we do deserve punishment. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us come to this place, a place of need for things to be made right. And we have two choices. We can either do something about it and fix ourselves, or we can just say it is what it is, and I'm not going to be able to do anything. But God has come, and he's given us the third choice. Belief. Faith that Jesus has come. That he did something about it. That you and I can't do anything about it. But that doesn't give us this passive, oh, well, whatever, it is what it is, and we're just going to let it be. No. We have, we have been given the opportunity to believe that Jesus has come. And by his gospel work on the cross, his blood was poured out for us. For our sin, for our shame, he was broken. And yet, he didn't stay broken, he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day to prove that he is the one who has come and can judge And in his judgment, he has poured out mercy on those who are in Christ. And he has taken the wrath that was due us. That's what Paul's saying. He says all of it without even using scripture. Like he's he's just, he's he's not going back and becoming this, uh, resting on his religious teaching. He's meeting these people where they are. But he's he doesn't quote scripture, but he speaks scripture. Listen, that's what we need. Okay? We don't need our best ideas on how to fix something. And we don't need to just tell people to forget about it because you can't fix it. We need to hear and believe that Jesus has come and he has fixed it. That the gospel is true. That the God-man has come and that he is the one who will judge God's righteous judge, John, this is Jesus speaking, and he says in John 5, 26 through 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. All of Scripture points to this. Daniel begins in his prophecy, speaking of a Son of Man who would come. Jesus refers to himself most often as the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, He is the one who has come and can judge. And he's, to prove that He's the Son of Man, He died and was resurrected. And so now when you get to this point in the story, that's where people have a real problem. You see, because in this gospel account, Paul is deconstructing all of the Athenians' idolatry. And it's grace. It's grace that he would do that for this people. 
It's grace that God comes and does that for us. That the hope that we have in these other idols, these other things that we're searching for and longing for to satisfy us, God will expose them as empty. And then He will give us what we truly need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verses 32-34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, that's where we have issues. It says some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Sometimes we think that we need to be the ones that convince everyone. All we need to be is faithful proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then God will do the work of saving. But there will be also others that are going to mock us. Others that are going to say, that's crazy, man. You're putting every, your whole life is going to revolve around this, this myth of a Jesus who came and died and rose again. Yeah. That's what I'm going to base my life on because of faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm banking everything on it. And I'm going to, I'm going to offer you that same hope, that same faith. And yet I can't convince you, but I'm going to give you the, the, the story and we can look together and we can find evidence of it in my life and in your life that God is gracious and kind, that He is Lord over all, that He created heaven and earth, that He's the gracious giver, that He's the provider and sustainer, that He's sovereign over all times and nations, that He's knowing and knowable. Like we're going to find out together if all of that is true and I'm going to speak that truth to you. I'm going to wager everything on it. And by grace, some of these people came to faith. And that faith leads us to to both a, a passive and an active. Our faith should be both passive and active. The goal of the message that Paul gives to the Athenian people is not for more religion or more spirituality or more searching. He's giving them the opportunity to faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus leads us to a growing understanding of the work that He's accomplished on the cross. And a desire that that we would understand and believe that gospel to be true. If that's true, then I can't add or take away from what Jesus has done in my life. My good works don't add to what Jesus has done. My sin doesn't detract from what Jesus has done. So that becomes this, this passive rest and belief and faith. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Listen, that's what rest and peace looks like. That's what we have in Jesus. Knowing Christ leads to rest and peace. Not apathy or escape, which is what the the Epicureans or the Stoics, whichever one it was, was looking for. Right? It's not an apathy. But it's also not a fixing ourselves. It's a trust in one who has come and fixed us. Our gratitude for the complete and sufficient atoning work of Christ in the gospel, on the cross, invites us to participate 
in his redemptive work that's taking place today. So passive, yes, rest in peace. Cast your cares upon him. Believe, trust. But then if you believe and if you trust, it's going to play out in a way in your life that looks active. It's an active faith. Out of gratitude for the grace that we've received, we're called to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This knowing Jesus leads to an active faith, an active doing. So today I would call you, just as Paul is calling the Athenians. the, The call is to repent. To repent of what you have trusted in. Other than Jesus and to have faith in Jesus. Maybe today you're hearing this for the first time. You're hearing about Jesus who has come and who has worked righteousness for you. You don't have to earn it. By grace you can believe in Jesus today. And you can rest. Well, today, if that's your first introduction to Jesus, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. We sang it earlier. Like, rejoice that the incarnate, real Jesus has come and you are knowing him and he is being known to you. Revelation 12.10 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. God is present. He is here. That would be the first call. But maybe today you're like, yeah, Joel, I got that. I believe. I believe that uh, the, the sufficient work of Christ on my behalf is true. Well, then rejoice that Emmanuel has come. And when you look at your life, Is there a disconnect between what you say you believe and the way that you live? I think for all of us there's going to be some degree of that. But the hope is that as we grow into maturity, our lives would begin to look more and more like Jesus. That our thoughts would be more and more like Jesus. That we would respond more and more like Jesus, even when we don't get to think about it. It would just be the natural inclination of our spirit because we're walking in the spirit. We are walking in the righteousness of Christ. And so for all of us, the the same call to the person who is hearing this for the first time and for us who are hearing it for thousands of times is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent that we have not pursued him with our whole lives. Believe that He is worth pursuing with every ounce of our being. And then we walk in those things. And we walk in those things to the glory of God and to the salvation of of the world that need to know who Jesus is. So I pray that we would do that. Amen? God, we trust You for these things, Lord. We thank you for this account from, from Acts where Paul goes and he, and he speaks to a crowd of people. And that out of that crowd, some believed. God, we thank you for maybe even a, a template of how we could go about thinking about the story of God and relating it to different philosophies and different worldviews and different mindsets that we would have that are being fed to us by all of the different media. 
God, and we would be able to counteract that with truth, Lord, and that we would be able to speak truth to our neighbors, be able to speak truth to our children, speak truth to our own hearts, God. I pray that we would know this story so well that it would just flow off of our lips. God, because it's, it's, it's the only story that satisfies. It's the only truth that meets me in my quest, in my wandering, in my wanting, and gives me joy. So, Lord, would you give us the gift of faith and belief today? We change the way that we live for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.